the optimal life. So, Alex, what was more difficult? You you experienced quite a bit of hardships in a what seemed to be a short period of time between both your father and your mother. And now looking back, your father was here and then all of a sudden was gone over a course of seven months. He had passed. And your mother um, has had the, the Alzheimer's illness for a very long, drawn-out time. How do you articulate the, the different experiences between between those two? Hi, Nate. Um, happy to be here. So um, that's a good question. It was um, vastly different and um, shockingly similar. It was my father, I literally, I was working on the West Coast on a TV show. It was 4.33 in the morning. I got a phone call that my father was in the hospital. Up until that moment, everyone in my family basically just got old and died. And I had never really experienced anything like this before. So um, when my father landed in the hospital, I didn't have any of the the appropriate legal documents. I knew nothing about his medical um, history. Well, I knew his medical history, but I didn't really know like what kind of meds he was on. I didn't really have like a back history of everything. And um, I was really unprepared. And it was heartbreaking to watch my father. He was in and out of consciousness. Um, he was basically, I accidentally put him on life support, which was something he didn't want, but the doctors had swore to me that it was just therapy. So um, I really went into it blindly. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong with my father. And then eventually he passed away after seven months. He never left the hospital. And let me just stop you real quick, Alex, if you don't mind. Uh, You're talking about accidentally putting your father on life support. So when you yeah. say accidentally, do you mean you you mentioned that they kind of convinced you to talk to us about it? How does how does that accidentally happen? Sure, and that's uh, one of the reasons why I actually wrote my book was um, my father had been in the hospital for three weeks at that point, and he um, had been receiving nothing but um, basically saline. You know, I mean, he just he wasn't able to eat more or less, and his body was retaining water and they were afraid he was going to go into um, heart failure. Basically, his body was going to fill up with fluids and then he was just going to die. And they had this theory that if they could put in a feeding tube and flush his body full of proteins, that the proteins would naturally cause all the water that were all the fluids that were um, surrounding his heart to sort of dissipate. And while they were at it, basically, while he was on the table, they wanted to put in a tracheotomy because he had had feeding tubes down his throat and he kept pulling them out and his vocal cords were getting um, damaged because of it. So in their theory, wisdom, whatever, they convinced me that while they had him on the table putting in this feeding tube that was going to flush out all the fluids, that they should also put him on um, uh, breathing um, ventilator. And that would help once he once the fluids basically left his body, 
um, that the ventilator would help his body get stronger quicker. And it was a total crapshoot, but it was basically without the proper documents, without a living will from him, without any of these signed papers telling me, even though I knew he didn't want to be on life support, the doctors were telling me this wasn't life support, this was therapy, and he was going to get better. If he had had the documents that he needed, they never would have done it. They just would have put him on like a morphine drip, let him get comfortable, and then he would have passed away. So wait, they, their doctors are telling you that this is not life support. Yeah. But and, are you, um, you're suggesting that being on the ventilator was. Where's the disconnect? Well, if he had, if he, if the therapy, if the fluids, if the protein uh, being flushed through his body had, had gotten rid of the fluids, which it did, he, um, their belief was that because at this point he was unconscious, he was in a coma, but not in a coma because he still had brain activity. So um, their belief was that flushing out the fluids would um, make him wake up. It would get his body stronger. It would make him basically shrink in size because he looked like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man at that point. And um, and then they would be able to take the the tracheotomy out. He'd be off the ventilator in a week, easy peasy. He'd be healthy and he'd be going home. And none of that happened. Um, He did, the fluids did dissipate and um, he did shrink down to a normal size, but he didn't wake up for a couple of weeks. And by the time he woke up, they had determined that he was now physically on life support they if he had taken off if they had taken him off the feeding tubes or the ventilator at that point he would have passed away so um and years later i've you know since then i've spoken to lots of doctors and nurses and yeah i mean unfortunately these therapies that they are trying to save their lives but often more so than not um something like that usually doesn't work and people accidentally get put on life support now if you have the right documents if you have a living will that says i absolutely don't want that you wouldn't have it you would they wouldn't even have you know what is what is the definition what is the layman's term definition alex of life support what what exactly does that even mean um i mean that's a good question i don't have the actual definition for it but in in my opinion Basically, life support is just helping you um, keep you alive. Other means of, you know, like a a machine that is keeping you alive. It's either breathing for you or it's feeding you or it's, um, I don't know. Some kind of artificial artificial assistance of sorts. And, um, you know, unfortunately you know, fortunately, unfortunately, technology has made it possible for us to stay alive under circumstances that, you know, even 20 years ago, wouldn't have been possible. Um, I mean, hell, now they can like, you know, freeze you and keep you alive for hundreds of years until they, you know, discover whatever it is that you're suffering from. I mean, science is great, and I'm all for it. But at times, you know, I don't necessarily think it's the um, most, I don't know, hospitable way to go. I mean, my father wouldn't have made it through the weekend. And instead, he lived another seven months, you know? Wow. Yeah. And he never, 
he could never speak again. He never ate again. He couldn't breathe on his own. He couldn't sit up. He couldn't walk. Mm. Um, it really wasn't a life that um, in any way, shape or form he would have wanted to have. Right. And um, it tore me apart because it was basically the biggest promise I'd ever broken to my father because I had promised I would never put him on life support. And and here he was. And I thought I was saving his life. And mm. instead, I just kind of chained him to this earth in some hellish fashion. It was awful. And um, so how do you I, let me just ask you, because that, that's that's deep. That's intense. Did you need to go to therapy? Um, I already was talking to a therapist um, prior to that, not because of anything like this, just, you know, normal, like, oh, I had a rough childhood, whatever kind of stuff. Um, like where, you know, I don't know. Um, I had somebody helping me through it so to speak there's i don't really believe there's any way to i mean i'm not i'm very spiritual i'm not terribly religious um i did start going to the chapel at the hospital every single day and praying because i was like if there's anything to this like why the hell not i'm oh, i'm trying everything but i i really think there's something that um this is one of those things where you just you have to forgive yourself and, you know, having a talking to a therapist or talking to a, a priest or rabbi or whatever, um, it probably helps. But, you know, I had everybody in my family basically on my side. So to, there were a couple of people who were actually suing me that were family members. We don't need to get into that now. But um, everybody else was totally on my side about this. But it doesn't really matter how many people are telling you you did the right thing you know you've got to kind of forgive yourself right. and it's interesting because this book that i wrote actually came from me writing another book which was the memoir about my whole experience with my father and then another one about my mother um and those were more just sort of i wasn't necessarily sitting down intentionally intentionally writing a book about all that stuff it just was sort of my way of dealing with it. And after writing the book, I realized that's when I finally forgave myself because I realized, you know what, under even with all the information you have now, you still would have done the same thing without those legal documents. You know, how do you it's like putting your a gun to your head and watching somebody in your family like jump into an ocean. If you don't throw them a life preserver, they're absolutely going to die. Or are you just going to sit there and watch them drown? You know, and that was sort of the situation I was in. I was that's a, that's watching good, my father drown. That is a that is a very uh, precise analogy that puts it yeah. into perspective very well. Yeah. So and, it's, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, and I was going to say, but again, like, and I, I always tell everybody this. I mean, I I um I wrote it in the book, but also I. Uh, I um God, I'm sorry. It's okay. While you think about that that, that analogy, I do want to ask you though, because you th this is a, a good lesson. This is a real powerful tool because a lot of people do struggle when they make a decision, especially for somebody else, if somebody else's health is involved, and something like that happens to them where their loved one passes or gets even more injured or more hurt. 
they always that they they that could eat somebody alive for the rest of their lives. And yeah. they were all they were trying to do everything in their power to do the right thing. Yeah. And because it didn't go the way that they had intended. Now it's their fault. And they carry that burden for years, if not decades. So it sounded like what you did, you put pen to paper. So mm-hmm. what about was putting pen to paper that allowed you the clarity to realize, hey, I, I did the best that I could. Um, well, it's interesting. There's a saying that I didn't know until after I wrote my memoir and it was getting edited. But somebody said writing a memoir is the best therapy you can ever get. And it kind of is because, um, again, you know, like having a therapist or a priest or, you know, your best friend tell you, oh, my God, you did everything right. You were amazing. You know, I you should you shouldn't be beating yourself up. But there's something about writing it down. And um, it's kind of the same idea as journaling, I suppose. You know, the theory behind journaling is, you know, it's great to get it all out. But once it's out, you can actually look at it from a different perspective. It's no longer in you eating you up. You can analyze it and be like, oh, my God, OK, A does connect to B. But, you know, you know, or you just have a different way. It's a different perspective and a different way to digest it than physically feeling it and having all the emotions and the, you know, the little gremlins in your head being like, what did you do? You know, it's, it's, it's very cathartic. And not that I think everybody needs to sit down and write memoirs, but I think journaling is a great way to um, get it out and just, like I said, digest it in a different way, see it from a different perspective. Mm, Powerful. So Take us then to the, the next thing, which is ultimately leads to your mother. Your mother, does her diagnosis start? Does this start happening while your father's in the hospital? Yeah, I I grew up in Connecticut. Um, I moved to Los Angeles for work, work in television. And I used to come home in between. I freelance for like award shows and TV specials. So there's definitely kind of a season for it. And when I had was on hiatus, I would come home and see my mother and, you know, move home for like a week, um, a week, a month, whatever, a couple times a year. And it was interesting because over that decade, I came home a lot. But I think because my mother knew I was coming home, I'm not sure it was even conscious on her part, but there was something about me coming home every week, flying home to see my dad to advocate for his care. I started seeing my mom acting weird, doing things that I had seen before, but sometimes you don't know what you're looking at until you know what you're looking at. And then suddenly when you know what you're looking at, you're like, oh my God. So I was blind to all the stuff that was going on with my mother because I think I was just coming home and staying, you know, twice a year for a month versus coming home every week. And she didn't, she never knew she had Alzheimer's. And I'm grateful for that. By the time she was diagnosed, she was already moderate to severe. Um, But so I don't think she was intentionally trying to hide stuff, but she couldn't maintain a normalcy that, that she could maintain otherwise when I was home so frequently, if that makes sense. Well, what, what are some examples, some things that like stood out to you that seemed peculiar? Um. She was never particularly neat, but she wasn't sloppy. And the house started getting covered with papers 
And so, for instance, when I would come home for, you know, Christmas and stay a month, she would collect and gather all the papers and I guess put them in a box or something or put them somewhere so that they were sort of neat. But when I was coming home every week, I was noticing that there was papers everywhere. And I'm not talking just like papers. I'm talking about like circulars from like five years prior, you know, the sales that were no longer happening. Mm. Um, like reports from an old job that she used to have. And she would just go through them and she would say she was filing. And again, if I wasn't coming home regularly, if she was busy filing her papers, I wouldn't have even noticed. But because she was doing it constantly and the papers weren't disappearing and I started looking at them and I'm like, oh my God. And she would be stapling random things together. Um, she also started collecting toilets which is bizarre. I mean, we had real, real toilets. Yeah, we had three bathrooms. Um, and we must have had like eight toilets at one point. And again, when I came home, you know, w- once or twice a year, I guess I don't know where the toilets were. But suddenly when I'm coming home all the time, I'm like, why is there a toilet in the you know, dining room covered with papers, you know, it was just weird stuff. And then now, she when you would ask her, Alice, because naturally you must say, mom, what, what is up with all these toilets that, that are <laughs> yeah. showing up around the house? What, what, were, what were the answers like? Well, she had just redone a bathroom downstairs, like a powder room. So that was sort of her, you know, her excuse was, oh, I was just, you know, trying out toilets or testing. To- I don't know what it was. It, Initially, again, initially, it it didn't spark any sort of like, what? Until the longer I was coming home with my, you know, to see my dad. And even then, I couldn't really deal with it. I couldn't wrap my brain around everything that was going on because I was dealing with all the stuff with my father. Right. But you um, kind of felt like you probably were talking to a confidant or saying, geez, my mom's losing her mind. Well, <laughs> right? yeah. like you're probably like, say it like tongue in cheek, like maybe this this thing with my father stressing her out, but she seems to be losing it a little bit. Well, my parents were divorced. So were divorced. my my dad being in the hospital wasn't, they had been divorced for 30 years at that point. So, okay. um, but yeah. you still notice like, geez, my mom is like kind of losing a step. Well, the, the, the day that it was really, I was just like, all right, there's something wrong. My dad, um, my dad had millions of dollars of bills because he had been in the hospital for so long. He had insurance, but his insurance had stopped. And um, I had had a really rough um, meeting with uh, the you know financial department at the hospital. And I was coming home and I was just like, God, I just need a drink or something. And I walk into the house and my mother had painted the bottom cabinets in the kitchen black, the top cabinets white. And that doesn't sound so bad, except for they were like polka dotted. It was just, and then she had gone to Home Depot um, and gotten plywood and stained it orange. And she had put it on top of the counters. And so I walk in from this really bad day at the hospital into this. It looked like Picasso had come and taken over my mother's kitchen. Like it just was this mishmash of just colors and whatever. And she was looking at a magazine from like Architectural Digest, a picture from a kitchen in Architectural Digest. 
and she hands it to me and says, isn't this gorgeous? And it, I realized that she thought what she was looking at, what she had just created looked like that beautiful kitchen from Architectural Digest. And I was like, oh, damn. Like, wow. I could excuse the toilets, maybe the paperwork, perhaps. But I was like, there is no way. There's nothing. I And I'm great at making excuses for people. But I was like, I, there's something wrong. And that's actually when I decided. I was like, all right, I it was evident my father was going to pass away when who knew and it happened a couple of weeks after that Picasso kitchen event. But um, I realized at that moment, I was like, I don't know what's going on with my mom, but whatever it is, I can't deal with it from California. So I actually went back to California and, you know, closed up shop, moved back East. And um, my mother didn't get diagnosed for another year and a half because it does take a while to get diagnosed with Alzheimer's because they basically have to determine it's every nothing else, you know, and it could be a million other things. Real quick, um, Alex, when did you move back? What year was that? 2007. 2007. Wow. Okay. So you've been back there for 16, 17 years. Yeah, I know. That's pretty wild. In my mind, it's always like 10 years ago or five years ago. And right. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, she so you, wound up after she got diagnosed, she wound up living another 10 years. But they determined when she had gotten diagnosed that she most likely had had it already for a decade. So it was pretty brutal. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, there's so many different things that you have to deal with. All the dynamics of uh, de uh, deteriorating your mother's brain deteriorating, you know, your father was gone, but now you've got this long, the long goodbye. It is who, the long goodbye. The long goodbye. Who was that? It was the uh, wife of uh, Ronald Reagan. I think Nancy Reagan said it's a long goodbye. It is. And, long and, and that's why I started with that question. You've had two very different experiences. You had a somewhat relatively quick goodbye when, when you, you your father was living, but he was really gone. So that yeah. happened fast. One day he was here, the next day he wasn't. And then your mother was a long, progressive, slow process. You said she lived with Alzheimer's for 10 years before she passed. Yep. Um, so so how, do you, how do you articulate that process of seeing the slow, long goodbye? What, what, what was harder for you? Well, my father was kind of a shocker because, you know, I wasn't expecting it. Um I thought nothing could be more horrible than what happened to my father. And, you know, then stepping into this with my mother, it was, um, it was awful and it took awful to a whole nother level. You know, mm. um, the one thing I will say is that having gone through what I went through with my father, the moment I suspected there was anything wrong with my mother, you know, a year and a half before she got the di actual diagnosis. I mean, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to get the paperwork I was going to get. So I was unlike my father, what made it so hellacious or 10 times worse with my father was not being prepared. So I was at least prepared as much as I could be with my mother, which helped in that aspect. Um, the thing that I think is horrible about Alzheimer's all of it is horrible. But one of the most difficult parts that people don't often talk about is that you're grieving constantly. Um, 
you know, the moment that my mother actually never forgot me, but there was a moment where she forgot my name. And towards the end, like the last six months, she would call me her baby girl. But it was very obvious she knew who I was. Um, But, you know, like the moment she forgets my aunt or when she suddenly forgets something that she loved or she forgets how to say pepperoni pizza, which is something she loved. She would go like this. She would make little circles. And that was her symbol of I want a pepperoni pizza. Um, You're constantly going through these minor little deaths like I, I call it grief by a thousand cuts because you are constantly grieving every stage and you're you, losing yeah. them piece by piece. And it's, it's you, awful. You as the care, you as the caregiver. Yeah. You as the caregiver are, are grieving literally 24 seven for yeah. 10 years. You were grieving 24 seven for 10 years. So over wow. almost 4,000 days. Of the wow, same, look at you doing the math. The, <laughs> of the same angst over and over. And it just got more and more over the course of time. It had to be shocking, too, at times when your mom, whatever she loved in life, all of a sudden had no recollection of it. Those moments for you had to be like, geez, like this is the thing that you were obsessed with your whole life. And you have no clue what I'm even talking about right now. It really it it's. It's shocking. It's heartbreaking. It's my mother was a genius and I'm not using that term lightly. Like she really was. She is a PhD. She was a, a statistician in econometrics. Like what is that? I don't even know what that is. Um, she was brilliant. So watching that disappear was horrifying. She was an independent, strong woman my whole life. Um, but then, like, watching her become childlike, uh, you know, they tell you to keep having them do what they love to do. One of the things we loved to do was go to movies. But then it, there got we got to a point where she couldn't differentiate between the reality of us sitting in a theater and what she was watching on screen. And so... I remember taking her to Harry Potter movie. She loved Harry Potter movies. That's something we did together. And she, the moment like Voldemort came on, she started shaking and cowering. And I was like, Oh my God. Like that was, Mm. it was, it's heartbreaking in such a way that you, you can't even articulate it. It's, not something that your brain can even comprehend until you're actually experiencing it, you know, and watching somebody disappear right before your eyes. And I mean, I did sort of watch that with my father, like he got, you know, smaller and whatever, you know, a disease and being in a hospital for seven months will do to you. But, you know, my mother physically looked the same and she was becoming childlike, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was just, it was, heartbreaking and awful but in a weird way once you come to terms with it it can be beautiful and in no way shape or form am i saying that there's anything wonderful about alzheimer's but you kind of have to embrace it and at some point you sort of have to become very in the now so if you're having a great day and you're doing something and she's having a good day and you're sitting in a park and you know she's enjoying the sun on her face or whatever it is you kind of like take a little mental picture of it and say, all right, you know, this is a good one. 
And is that what you mean by it could be beautiful? It allows it you to be. really be more present in these tiny moments. You have to be, yeah. you know, otherwise you're going to be crying all the time, depressed. You can't even get out of bed. So you have to, you have to find the beauty in the small things, which sure. I think is something that, you know, we talk about when we're talking about meditating or mindfulness or all that other stuff, but very few people do it all the time, live their life like that. And something like Alzheimer's really kind of makes you forces you to, I mean, doesn't force you to do anything. You don't have to do that. But I was finding myself doing it more and more being like, okay, I can't control this. I can't stop it. Um, unlike any other disease, like if somebody has cancer, there's still always hope like, well, maybe they'll go into remission or something. Unfortunately mm. with Alzheimer's currently, there is no such hope. So you just know it's going to get worse. So if you embrace the good days or the good moments or the good, you know, anything like just towards the end, my mother, um, she, she was still speaking, but she was kind of talking gibberish. There were some actual words in there. And then a lot of it was just it didn't make any sense. Um, but I could tell like she was enjoying that I was there or she was holding my hand and kind of patting my hand. And my mother wasn't a very affectionate person. So she became more nurturing and sweet as the, you know, the disease progressed. And again, I would prefer my sassy mother to that person any day, right. but I, I was, you know, it, trying to enjoy everything I could. got to find um, those little silver linings. Yeah. And I see exactly what you're saying. We're getting close here. I did want to ask you before we get to the book, um, just you, you talk about these 10 minute rituals that caregivers should be focusing on care, whether you're caring for a, a sick person, uh, someone that has a mental illness, uh, someone that is, has dementia or Alzheimer's, whatever it is you have, you suggest 10 minute rituals daily. Is that correct? Um, yeah, it's something I came up with that I call Zen in 10. Um, and really it, it, it was born out of me having severe panic attacks. Um, and I, one of the problems with being a caregiver, especially a caregiver with somebody that has dementia to somebody who has dementia is um, it can be all consuming and you don't really carving out time for yourself feels selfish, you know, and um, it really started to take its toll on me. And I started having severe panic attacks and I was like, all right, listen, I got to start. I know better. Like I used to meditate. I used to, you know do Reiki, all this stuff. And I had stopped taking care of myself. So I was like, I can't give this anything more than 10 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, anything more than 10 minutes a day would stress me out. So I started um, creating these little rituals for myself to just sort of ground myself and just give myself a gift. And it turns out years later, I found out that science actually proves that, yeah, you know, obviously meditating for 20 minutes a day is better, but if you can just give yourself 10 minutes a day to sort of, you know, like lower your cortisol, just ground yourself, get out of your head and just sort of center, um, it actually helps. And over time, it starts to re um, wire your neural passageways so that because when we're stressed out, we can't think, 
And when you've got somebody, a parent who has Alzheimer's and you're stressed out and you're suddenly like your brain isn't working, then suddenly you're freaking yourself out going, oh, my God, I have it, too. You know, Mm. but stress will do that to you. So it was interesting. The more I did it at first, I just did it because I was like, I don't know what else to do. But after a couple of weeks, I started noticing like, hey, I'm actually thinking clear. I've got a problem in front of me and now I can start thinking about how to solve it rather than reacting to it you know, I was actually being more proactive. And um, yeah, so I started creating all these little rituals. I'm actually writing a book about the rituals called Zen and Ten. But um, they don't have to be big, grandiose things. It could just be breathing techniques. You know, if you do know how to meditate, you don't have to sit under a tree for an hour. You can just sit on your couch and just meditate for 10 minutes. But 10 minutes seems to be the sweet spot. Interesting. What you said there that stuck out to me too is, it's wild how our brains could do that to us. You're dealing with a, a, per, a parent who's lost their mind, doesn't remember anything. And then whenever you have the slightest little glitch in your brain, you start panicking almost going, oh, my God, I've got the same disease for It's me. the worst. That's and if you're worst. talking to people and you can't remember yes. something and suddenly you're like, oh, my God, they, they think I have it. And you start getting like paranoid oh, wow. and you're like, oh, my God, I know they're looking at me. Everybody's talking about me. And you're like, OK, you got to stop. From Zero to Zen, A Guide to Help You Thrive as a Caregiver. That's the book. Uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, if you want to say, uh, I mean, we, we kind of know what it's about, but if you want to just give us a high-level synopsis, who's the type of audience that should be consuming it, those kind of things. Um, well, really, it's for everyone, whether you're a caregiver now or you're going to become a caregiver or if at some point you're going to need caregiving because it really is – Everything I've learned over the course of a decade, and it it takes you through the steps that in the in the order I believe it should kind of happen, whereas get all the legal documents in a row, get your ducks in a row, because if you don't have the right legal documents, it doesn't matter, you know, anything else, you won't be able to advocate for them, you won't be able to, they won't, you know, the doctors won't be able to talk to you if you don't have a, um, the appropriate uh, legal documents, if you don't have the ability, if you don't have the uh, power of attorney over finances, you're not going to be able to help your family member, you know, potentially get on Medicaid. That's something else that's in the book. I know Medicaid in this country is, you know, everybody turns their nose up at it. I mean, nobody wants to be on Medicaid, but the moment I got my mother on Medicaid, I was spending over $10,000 a month on her care. The moment she got on Medicaid, she got better care and I wasn't paying a dime. And um, it talks about, you know, you need to know uh, medical information, if they have any kind of dietary needs, anything like that. But then it also talks about grief and resentment, because what a lot of people don't talk about, I didn't actually have a very great relationship with my parents growing up. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't talk about is that, you know, I one of my mother's doctors was like, you really need to go to a support group. So I walked into the support group and the first thing they said was, it's an honor and a privilege to be taking care of my mother. And I, I turned around and I left and I was like, these are not my people. You know, I was going to do everything humanly possible I could to take care of my mother and take care of my father. But it wasn't an honor and a privilege. There was a part of me that was really kind of angry about it because it was like they weren't very nurturing to me growing up. And now here I was doing for them what they weren't, hadn't done for me. And um, it's funny because nobody ever wants to talk about, oh, I hate 
being a caregiver to my parents. You know, everybody always thinks like, oh, no, 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 I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to love it. Um, so the book talks about resentment and how it's okay to actually resent doing it, and, you mm. know, and how to kind yep. of work through that with yourself. Um, and then it talks about the importance of self-care. And again, it's everything I've learned and I coach people. I'm, you know, help people. I used to do it for free. And now, you know, somebody was finally like, yeah, you should start charging for this. But, um, but really the book, it's everything that I teach is in that book. And it really is the guide that I wish that I had had when, you know, I started my whole caregiving journey. It's like somebody drops off. It's like a, a Bugs Bunny cartoon where somebody drops off a big baby on your, on your doorstep, you know, with a little pin stuck to him, like, take care of me. And there's no manual. This is your manual. This is how you take care of your your people. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. From zero to Zen, we've linked it in the show notes. Alexandrafree.com. That's your website. We've linked that as well. I've got one last question for you. Sure. We've mentioned your name, Alexandra Free. Yes. So looking back on your life, you talk about a tough childhood, um, a lot of challenges, not being nurtured. Then you go into your adult life. And you've got your issues with your father. He's here. And then the next day he's not. And then it's a seven months of him on life support, we'll call it, uh, eventually leads to him passing. And then, of course, your mother at the same time starting her Alzheimer's and then a long 10 years uh, of you um, having to nurture and do the things that maybe they didn't do for you. You were doing for them. My question, Alex Free, (laughs) are you still living imprisoned from the demons of your past or are you now truly free (laughs) um i am free i really am free again i would never have wanted my parents to ever have gone through any of the things that they went through i would never have wished me having had to go through what i went through with my parents but there was something You know, we can be controlled by what happened to us as children. I mean, we don't have any control when it's happening to us as children. But, you know, as adults, we do have the choice to forgive, don't necessarily forget. Um, And I was, because of what I was going through with my parents, I was forced to sort of make a decision. And there were times, especially with my mother, because it was such a long, drawn-out process and I was hemorrhaging cash, that, you know, some people were like, nobody would blame you if you walked away. And I was like, but I would. Like, I couldn't do that. So, And I think when you're faced with, you know, any hardship, whatever it might be, I think you learn a lot about yourself. And I think you, you know, you find strength that you didn't know you had. And I realized it didn't really matter what anybody had done to me growing up. Like, that wasn't who I was. And initially, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take care of them financially. I'm going to make sure that they're taken care of and everything's fine, but I'm not, you know, I am not going to nurture them. I'm not going to be all huggy kissy because that's not what they were. And then I was like, you know what? I don't really care. That's who I am. That's I'm doing. I'm the adult now. I'm like reparenting, you know, and it, I don't know. It really did free me. I, there's no resentment. There's no anger. There's no hate. It's just, you know, I did what I needed to do and I'm proud of how I took care of them. And when they both went, I was there holding their hand and it was 
Now I'm going to start crying, but there was nothing but love. There was no more anger. Mm. And it was beautiful. That it sucks, but it was beautiful. That is beautiful. And uh, the most powerful thing that you just said is that you were proud of yourself because there was times where you really doubted yourself and made, doubted the decisions you made. So that was a tremendous way to end it. Uh, Alex Free, thanks so much for sharing insight into the story and wishing you all the best. Absolutely. Thanks, Nate. It's been a pleasure.